we are certainly unworthy of this, but nonetheless, Lord, this is what you have done for us through your work, through your death and resurrection. And Lord, we ask that you would have what it is that you have done for us and what it is you currently do for us in the presence of the Father. Oh Lord, would you be glorified. We have before us a passage uh, this afternoon that is likely well known, uh, but unfortunately is a passage, or at least a part of a passage, that uh, is used by many who like to twist Scripture and promote a false doctrine known as sinless perfectionism. They say, see right here it says, these things were written so that we may not sin. And then it says, if we sin. And therefore it must imply that we can reach a state of sinlessness or a state of perfection. And in doing so, they not only teach heresy, but they also pollute people's understanding of Scripture. And in addition, they miss the glorious truths and comforts that are meant to be found in this passage. However, in reality, this claim is nothing new. The first letter of John was not written in a vacuum. There were dangerous heresies that he sought to address, and we actually see him address these heresies kind of right out of the gate in the start of the letter. Uh, The scene was ripe with false teachers, and they were bringing destructive heresies, some of which, for example, are this. They denied the true and literal humanity of Christ. And so we see John starting off with addressing this in verses 1 and 2. He confirms and testifies to the incarnation of Jesus. Look over there with me, and and this is what we read. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands. And we have seen are concerning, uh, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Another heresy that was present was no different than today, really, naming the name of Christ, claiming to have fellowship with him, and yet walking in the darkness. This is what we see in verse 6. John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Notice the description of where they were walking. It is referred to as the darkness. There is a strong contrast to the truth that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And so... It is impossible to walk in the darkness and yet at the same time have fellowship with him who is the light. And finally, we have the heresy of sinless perfectionism. That is, there were those who were claiming that since their supposed conversion, they no longer sin. And so we see John address this straightforwardly, bluntly. He leaves no room for confusion, no room for second opinions. He says this in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so we certainly see that this addressing of heresy was a major concern for John. However, this is not the only concern. This wasn't his sole purpose behind writing the letter. No, there was much more than that. 
It is a multifaceted purpose. It is as if there are purposes that roll up under the main purpose, the one ultimate purpose, and that is his expression of apostolic and pastoral care and concern for these believers. He offers instruction, comfort, and concrete reasons for assurance. He provides sound doctrinal truths, no doubt, but he does so by combining them with the practical implications that follow those, that, that teaching, that doctrine. And here's how we can identify the purposes. This is what we often see. We see this phrase, I am writing these things to you. And other variations such as these things I have written to you. And when we do so, here's what we find. We find John saying that he writes this letter so that their joy may be made complete in 1 John 1.4. In 1 John 2.1, he writes what we see here, it's so that they may not sin. And, and a little later in the same chapter, in verse 26, we see that he writes to protect them from heresy. And finally, in the last chapter, in verse 13, what we see is that he writes so that they may know that they have eternal life. And so we have the full gamut of pastoral care on display, a proper teaching, protecting from heresy, and wanting the body to know that in Christ they have eternal life. And this is what we see even in the passage before us today. Namely, that he has written these things so that they may not sin. But here is the ultimate comfort. Here is the great encouragement. It's that if they sin, if we sin, we have an advocate and a propitiation with the Father. And so along these lines, uh, the four things that we will look at is the Christian aim. What is our aim? Secondly, the Christian reality. What is it that we actually experience? Next, the Christian's hope. And finally, um, the extent of Christ's propitiatory work. Who is it for? Who is it for? So what is the Christian's aim? John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Uh, This purpose here stated uh, follows on or comes on the heels of what he had previously expressed concerning sin. Specifically in verse 9. In verse 9 he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what can happen with such a passage, if it's taken out of context or not properly understood, is that you think that there can be, well, I can sin and then if I confess, I'm forgiven and so I can continue in sin and then be forgiven and all's well. And this thought pattern is not uh, consistent with what it is to be a Christian. Uh, It is this thought pattern that we even see more explicitly and emphatically refuted in chapter 3 of the same letter. Let's listen to some of the language there. You're welcome to turn there. We're looking at verses 4 through 9. This is what he says. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. 
In verse 9, no one who is born of God sins. It is this same line of thought that we find in Paul's letter to, to the Romans. Right? In chapter 6, verse 1, we read, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How is it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so John, along with Paul, is very clear. There's no way to live in sin, to practice sin, to continue in sin, and to truly know God. This is to walk in the darkness, even as we saw earlier. And so John isn't teaching uh, sinless perfectionism here. He isn't saying the true Christian will never sin. That goes against what we even saw in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Rather, what he is strongly stating is do not think that because you will be forgiven, it is okay to live in sin and it's okay to trample upon the grace of God. It's not okay. And so lest there be anyone thinking in this way, John states that while we will never uh, be without sin, the Christian's aim should actually be that of seeking to not sin. This is one of the reasons we see for why he wrote the letter, so that we may not sin. John truly desires that these believers pursue holiness. This is his longing. This is what he wants to see in them. He even says in his third letter, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He genuinely desires that they would walk according to God's words and commandments. This is even what we see right here following our passage in verses 3 through 6. He says, By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And in addition to this, we also see John go on to address their interaction. Their interaction with the world and how to overcome it. uh, What it is to abide in God. Their interaction with one another and how it is to be in love and truth. So you can see a true pastoral uh, heart and, and bent towards wanting to ensure that, yes, keep away from these heresies. But here is how you ought to walk. Here is how you ought to live. And so scripture, um, so scripture is clear and John is clear. Uh, if we were to put this into the language of other New Testament scripture, it would sound like this. It is a walking in, the manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel. It is a pursuit of holiness and seeking to be holy as he is holy. It is a striving to be conformed more and more to his image. And I suppose if we jump back to John, it is a walking in the light as he is in the light. The Christian's aim should be to live in a manner such that rather than giving into temptation and sinning against God, they are to do the exact opposite and to seek to mortify sin and to live in obedience. But I think we all know that the fact of the matter is that no matter how much we desire to do this, 
how much we desire to not sin and to make it our aim to not sin, that no matter how much we try to pursue and to lay hold of holiness and try to pursue more and more Christ-likeness, the reality of our life, the reality of the Christian's experience is that we will, in fact, sin. I think all of us here could testify to that. We all know that while we aim to be more like Christ, we don't always do the things that we ought to do. Now, the Christian's life should absolutely reflect an overall trajectory of growth in sanctification and Christ's likeness. However, what we must understand is that this side of heaven, perfection will not be reached. And so this brings us to our second point, that of the Christian's reality. That is, that while we aim to not sin, what is the actual reality of our day-to-day experience? Is it not that we are continually bombarded with temptation? There is a temptation from without, temptation from within, and the reality is that unfortunately at times we give in to these temptations. And I think if we truly examine ourselves, there are even times, unfortunately, where we desire these things. Such sometimes is the state of our heart. And so let's consider for a moment uh, the reality of sin. There are many ways in which we can and often do sin. One, we say sinful things. We are cutting with our words. We at times joke inappropriately. We gossip, we slander, we grumble, and we complain. In addition to this, we think sinful thoughts, do we not? Oh, there are times where we are filled with lust and we envy and we covet. We are at times filled with worldly thoughts and aspirations. And we commit sinful acts. We repay evil for evil. We lash out in anger. We respond with harshness and we are impatient. And what about our heart? What about the motives of our heart? Rather than having sincere motives as we should have, we instead we have impure motives that are driven by pride and selfishness. Put simply, there are times that we don't walk as we should and we don't obey what God has called us to do. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I fully recognize that these things do not define us in Christ. But nonetheless, the fact of the matter is it's that these are the types of things that at times beset us. These are the things that at various times we give into. Scripture testifies to this. We know it, and John most certainly knew it. He was a saint who sins, writing to saints who sin, and so he was cognizantly aware that perfection in this life is not possible. This is the battle that goes on inside, inside of us the whole of our Christian life. The battle that we see outlined in Romans 7. It's the battle between the flesh and in the spirit Paul says in Romans 7:19 For the good that I want I do not do but I practice the very evil I do not want And if you're sitting there thinking I know nothing of this battle I know nothing of this struggle then you need to examine yourself and see are you truly in the Lord because the fact of the matter is this is the experience of the Christian life This is the experience of the Christian life. There is a battle that takes place within us 
where because of what Christ has done, we long to please and obey and walk according to His Word. But because we are still sinful and in the flesh, we don't always do that. And so there is this constant battle taking place. Do you know that battle? Does that battle ring true in your ears? This battle is such a reality that we too cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And we will be looking soon at the one who sets us free from this body of death. While we all know that we sin, we all know this, that's not the question, but what happens is, is we can sometimes tend to think of our sin and just so quickly jump to, well, I'm forgiven, and we can push the sin aside. What I'm asking for a moment is that we do not do that, but that we allow the weight of our sin to rest on us. Not to stay in that thought, but let it rest on you. How we transgress God's law and do not walk as we ought. Think through all the various ways that we just listed and all the ways that we sin. Think through this last week. Think through this morning or even your drive to church. Why? Because it makes this next statement by John as if it wasn't already glorious enough. It makes this statement by John that much more glorious, that much more comforting, that much more encouraging. He says, and if anyone sins which we know that we do, we have an advocate with the Father. What a glorious truth and a glorious reality if anyone sins, which we just considered as a reality of the Christian life. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Now let that rest on you. Let that comfort you. That we are not left to ourselves. Imagine if John had stopped just prior to this and said, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And that's where it ended. Oh, we would be crying out because we know that we have sin. Where is our hope? But he didn't stop there. Much like the but God statements that we see throughout Scripture, we have one here that is equally as glorious, equally as humbling, considering what we deserve. And equally as comforting, he says, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. You see, John has essentially stated that the Christian's aim should be to not sin. But at the same time, realizing that sin in the life of a Christian is going to be a reality, he now seeks to comfort them with a remarkable statement, namely that there is one who is both their advocate and their propitiation. And so this leads us to our third point, that of the Christian's hope. But before we more, look more closely at the two aspects of advocate and propitiation, we must first consider why it is that Christ can be our advocate in propitiation. What makes him fit to do so? Why is it that he can be both advocate and propitiation? It's because he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. His ability to fulfill these functions stems directly from his righteousness. 
The whole of his life was a life of obedience. In fact, he came to fulfill all righteousness, for that is what is required. Perfect righteousness. And so, in both his active obedience, that is, in his living and obedient life, in all that God had commanded to be done, and in his passive obedience, that is, the willingness and and willingly laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin, he completely accomplished the work that was given to him to do, that none other could accomplish. He accomplished it. And having done so, He has fulfilled all that needed to be done. He does not leave us wanting, but He completely fulfills our every need. We needed righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness. We needed a mediator between God and man, and Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He is our mediator. We needed our sin, guilt, and shame removed. Christ is our expiation. We needed wrath removed, and Christ is our propitiation. Yes, it is Christ who we need, and He is the one that is fit to be both advocate and propitiation. And so what does it mean that He is our advocate? Well, the word used here by John, interestingly enough, is parakletos. Now, that word likely brings to mind the Holy Spirit because this is the word that is used to refer to the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel. And here John uses it to refer to Christ as our advocate. So what is exactly going on here? Well, we read in John 14, 6, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. Notice here that it is another parakletos that will be given, thus implying that Christ is the first parakletos, the first advocate. And it is in his spirit, and it is his spirit that he sends as another advocate. You may even see this as a translational option in the margin of your Bibles. But the question is how is it that the Holy Spirit is an advocate? Well, there's at least two ways. One, uh, we see, if you want to turn in your Bibles to John 16, as we look at verses 7 through 11, this is what we see here. What we see here is that the, the Spirit is one who is going to come and to convict the world. Uh, this is what it says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And so you see, one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit's work is that of advocate. He comes to represent Christ, as it were, to vouch for Him, to be an advocate for Him, to draw the world unto Him. But in addition to this, the Holy Spirit is also an advocate for us. He helps us in our weakness, in our prayers, and He intercedes for us. This is what we see in Romans 8.26. 
In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For, if we, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so what we see here is that to be an advocate is certainly to be one who offers support or help. That is definitely an aspect of it, but it is much more than that. To be an advocate is to fight for, to plead for, and to represent another. It is to stand in the gap between two parties to intercede for them. And this is something that we see with Moses. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, uh, starting with verse 7. This is what we read there. While Moses, this, essentially while Moses had been meeting on the mountain with the Lord, the Israelites had gone astray. This is what has happened prior to the, what we're about to read. They had gone astray, they had made the golden calf, and they had begun to worship it. Uh, the Lord sees this, and this is what he says to Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. The Israelites had corrupted themselves, and the Lord wanted to rightly destroy them. But notice what Moses does in verse 11. This is what he says. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses steps in on their behalf and he entreats the Lord for them. He intercedes for them and he was their advocate before God. And of this advocacy, we get a greater glimpse in Psalm 106.23. This is what we read there. Therefore he said that he would destroy him. That's what we just read. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. That's advocacy. The standing in the breach before him. Had not Moses done that, then his wrath would not have been turned away. He stands in the breach. That's what an intercessor does. However, what we must understand is Moses' advocacy and his intercession was only temporary. As a typological chosen one, he pointed to the chosen one, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our advocate and propitiation. And it is our advocate, Christ, who is with the Father. This aspect of, of him being with the Father has allusions to John 1.1 where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From eternity past, he was always with the Father, but now he resides in the presence of the Father for us. 
for us. This is even what we see in Hebrews 9.24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Praise God. Hallelujah. He appears in the presence of God for us. He has entered that heavenly tabernacle as our advocate. Is this not a great encouragement? Knowing that we sin, we need an advocate. We need someone to plead for us. We have nothing in ourselves to plead. He not only ensures that our sin is forgiven and removed, which would be remarkable enough, He now, as it were, goes on the offensive for us and He pleads for us and actively does so. Oh, it is nothing in us that he pleads, but it's nothing that we have done. But what he pleads before the Father is what he has done. He pleads his sacrifice, his work that he accomplished, his righteousness. Moses pled, if we read a little bit further, he pled the promises of God. Christ pleads his work, his sacrifice, what he has done. And this is along the lines of what Calvin says. The intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation. And what we must realize is that this isn't just an eschatological hope. Meaning the advocate representation of Christ is not just something that we have in that great judgment day. Uh, It most certainly is that. It is in that day when all things are laid bare and all things are open and all things are searched out, right? When we stand there knowing that what we deserve is His eternal wrath. Our advocate will step in and say, these are mine. These are those for whom I have shed my blood. Can you imagine that day when He steps in and claims us as His own? And we go to dwell with him forever. It's remarkable. But we need not wait for this eschatological reality in order to enjoy the blessing and comfort provided. It's not only eschatological. It is a present reality. John says we have an advocate. That is, we presently have, right now, an advocate pleading and interceding for us in the presence of the Father. That's what we have right now. That's what we have every day. And so though Satan should buffet and tempt us to despair, though he should tell us of the guilt within, the guilt that we are all aware of, oh, though he should bring those things to our mind, and though in our own minds we can even at times you know, cause ourselves to despair, to be fooling the feel, the, uh, feel, uh, feeling the full weight of our sin, though that may be the case, We must not look inward, but we must look outward and upward to our advocate, the one who is pleading for us. That is where we should look, because the fact of the matter is, is who can bring a charge against us? This is what we see in Romans 8.34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ 
Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Now listen to this. Who also intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. Therefore, who can bring a charge against us? And ultimately what we see a little later is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from that love. This is the beauty and comfort that John provides here. That though we sin, we have an advocate. And not just any advocate, but we have Jesus Christ the righteous who dwells in the presence of the Father for us. It is not just some random advocate. It is one who is righteous. And he is there in the presence, in the Holy of Holies as it were, interceding for us. But we not only have this advocate, we have one who is also the propitiation for our sins. Because both are truly needed. Both are truly needed. That is, he pleads, he not only pleads for us, but he is also our atoning sacrifice. I would say atoning sacrifice is a good summary level description of what is behind the word propitiation. However, As we dig deeper into this, what we will find is that there's actually been a lot of work and writing done uh, to analyze what is meant by propitiation. And the reason being is because the root of the Greek used here, which is helos, that's the root, and then you add other things onto it to form various words, that root is used in a number of other places. Um, to convey a number of things. It could convey forgiveness. It could uh, convey atonement. It can convey mercy. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is that word, that root and so forth, the word that's used here, what is it conveying here? Therefore, as a range of this meeting, this is what it leaves translators trying to determine. And, And in particular here, the two concepts that are in view is that of expiation and that of propitiation. In other words, is what, in, is, is, what is in view here that of uh, the removing of our sin and guilt? Is that what's primarily in view? Or does it have reference to the turning away of an appeasement and satisfaction of God's wrath? That's propitiation. So which one is in view? You see, both are important, both are needed, and both have been accomplished by Christ. They essentially go hand in hand, if you will. You really don't have one without the other. So closely linked are these two that one commentator even called it uh, the uh, expiatory propitiation. Um, But the question remains, which of these is specifically in view here? And as is usually the case, it is the context that decides. But before we look at our present context, what we want to look at is how do we see this particular root used elsewhere? And so to do so, I want to look at two places that specifically tie in well with our passage. First, Hebrews 9.5. This is what we read there. And above it were the cherubim of glory And he's talking about the scene like in the tabernacle, okay? And he says, above it um, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Where do we see propitiation or that root used here? It is in the Greek word used for mercy seat. 
And if you recall, the mercy seat in the tabernacle is where blood was applied for the purpose of satisfying or appeasing God. Now, if you will, let's flip over to Romans 3.25. Uh, We find in this passage this same exact word used that we saw in Hebrews 9.5. What we see here is this, starting with verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now here we go. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a key passage because what we see is that as the as a result of the propitiatory work of christ god the father can now be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus why well he's just because his wrath has been poured out in foolish measure upon his son He's been satisfied. And therefore, because he is just, he must now pronounce those who are in Christ as justified. That's the flow. The wrath of God has now been turned away and poured out on Christ, and therefore he has been satisfied, and we are now justified. And so what does this mean for our passage? Well, If we look at the context, what we see is that the propitiating work of Christ, that is, Him being a propitiation for our sins, is offset over and against His role as advocate. And what we examine is that this advocacy and intercession involves a pleading. It is a pleading for mercy. It is a pleading for mercy to be shown to us. It is a pleading for mercy because God has already poured out His wrath. He has take, Christ has taken it upon Himself. It has been poured out. It has been fully emptied. And therefore we have an advocate who is also our propitiation pleading for mercy for us. Expiation is certainly a great and glorious truth. Our sin and guilt has been removed. There's no doubt about that. It is because of Christ. But that is not all that is needed. God is just, and therefore sin must be dealt with, not just removed. It's not just pushing sin off to the side and then everything's okay. Sin still needs to be dealt with. And in this case, it was dealt with in Christ. Uh, His wrath has been satisfied, and therefore, what I believe to be primarily in view is exactly what you would read in your NASB Bible, that He is the propitiation for our sins. He has extinguished the wrath of God. There's none left to be poured out. None, there's, there's not even a little bit left that we would have to undergo. And this should be a great 
comfort and encouragement to us. Namely, that though we sin, we will sin, we're potentially sinning right now. I mean, you name it, sin is what we do. Sin is what we do. But we have an advocate, and not just an advocate, but the advocate who himself has propitiated the wrath of God. He has taken upon himself what we deserve, and he's done it to the fullest. Think back to Moses for a moment. Remember what we read in Psalm 106.23? Had not Moses stood in the breach, the Israelites would have been destroyed. But even in this, Moses was only a temporary relief. It was only a temporary stay on the wrath of God. But with Christ as our propitiation, we have an eternal stay on the wrath of God. There's no other chance or or opportunity that the wrath of God can come upon us if you're in Christ. Consider that without Christ's propitiatory work, we would only have a fearful expectation of judgment. A judgment that would consist of these various things. Everlasting dying. Eternal torment. Eternal fire. Eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal suffering the wrath of God in a place known as the lake of fire. And that forever. No end. But Christ has done what an eternity in hell is unable to do. He has made complete propitiation for our sin and he's turned away and he's appeased the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath of God has been emptied. He has been satisfied. And so we can be confident, we can now be confident that in Christ our sins have been paid for in full. You see, John doesn't wish to promote sinless perfectionism because it's not about us. Instead, what he promotes and points us to is the one who is perfect, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is both our advocate and propitiation. That is where he points us. It's not about, are we perfect? No, we, our life, even as we sung earlier, our life is hidden in Christ. It is not about us. But what we see here is that this work, this propitiatory work, um, is not only for our sins, but it's for the sins of the whole world. Uh, This is what John says. Look back at our passage. He says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so this brings us really to our final point, and that is the extent of, of Christ's propitiatory work, or you could also say, really, the world's hope. What is the world's hope? And what we must understand is that the extent of this work, this propitiation uh, made by Christ, it is both universal and it's particular. And so what is first meant by the extent being universal? I mean, this is something that we have to deal with because it's in our text. And, um, you know, sometimes it can cause consternation when you're talking about the, word, you know, the, 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 the work of Christ being universal and for the whole world. So what is in view here? What we see throughout the New Testament 
is that Christ and his purpose, Christ and his work are mentioned in conjunction with the world on numerous occasions. This isn't just a one-time occurrence. Um, some of the places in which we see this, 1 John 4.14 We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John 1.29, John the Baptist, upon seeing Christ, what does he proclaim? He proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? He takes away the sin of the world. And then John 3.16, we all know this, for God so loved the world that He gave or sent His only begotten Son. And so how are we to make sense of all this? What is John saying here in our passage? He is saying that Christ isn't just the propitiation for those to whom he writes. And he is not just the propitiation for us, but Christ is the propitiation for the whole world. It's not as if those to whom John was writing had one propitiator and then we have a different propitiator and then the world has, right, as if there's different propitiators. No! There is one propitiator. There is one Savior. There is one hope. There is one mediator. There is one name under heaven by which all men must be saved and it is the name of Jesus Christ. That is it. Outside of Him, no hope. And so in this sense, in this sense, His work is universal. He is the one to whom all must look. And so this leads us also to then the particular aspect of his propitiatory work. The fact that his propitiatory work is for the whole world does not mean that all are automatically and immediately forgiven. That's not what it means. The fact that he was sent into the world doesn't mean that all will be saved. It means that they must look to him. And so in that sense, it is particular. It's to those who look to Christ. It is only those that look to him who are covered by his work. Uh, And this makes sense. The blood of Christ is precious And it was not indiscriminately poured out, but it was poured out for those whom he saved, those whom the Father has given him. And this is what we see in Scripture. This is what we see in Scripture. While we see a universal aspect, if you will, there's a particular aspect, and here are some of the places we see it. Christ, in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so you see his intercession, even in prayer, being specifically for those who are his. For those who are his. And earlier we looked at a passage in Romans 3 and considered that as a result of the propitiatory work of Christ, God is now both just and the justifier Uh, This is Romans 3.26. Notice he is both just and the justifier, not of the whole world, but specifically of a particular group. And it's that group that is in Christ. Those who have put their faith in Christ. That's who is included in that being justified uh, aspect. There is, is, as it were, a... um, 
you know, stipulations and uh, exclusive requirements to be able to be included under the propitiatory work of Christ. And it's that you need to be in him. That is the only way. So as much as Christ is the Savior of the world and the propitiation for the sins of the world, the efficacy of this work is limited to those who are in him. You must have the Son. That is what we see in 1 John 5, 11, and 12. Here's what it says. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And here it is. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Can't get any clearer than that. Therefore, this passage most certainly is a great comfort to those of us who are in Christ, is it not? If this doesn't provide us comfort, I don't know what will. The fact that we have one residing in the presence of God, pleading for mercy for us, has propitiated the wrath of God. There's nothing left to do. Oh, this should give us great comfort. He has completely extinguished the wrath of God for us. And while this is a great comfort to us, don't miss what we also see here. There is a hope for the world. There is hope for those of you who are not currently in Christ. For children and adults alike, there is hope for you. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do I have, do you have an advocate? And more specifically, do you have the advocate? Because there is one that can advocate for you. Do you have Christ? Are you in Christ? You see, this is essential because he is the only one who can truly be an advocate for you. And so along these lines, I plead with you to turn and trust to the one who can plead for you. Oh, would you turn to him, Jesus Christ the righteous, and have one who can advocate and have one who who has propitiated and ultimately have everlasting life. Let's pray.